Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The book of Exodus played a significant role in forming the identity of the Jewish people, with Exodus traditions appearing throughout the Hebrew scriptures. As the paradigmatic act of redemption, the Exodus event is featured prominently not only in Israel's prophetic corpus, but also in literature throughout the Second Temple period. Indeed, the storyline of Exodus even provides the narrative framework for some New Testament texts, written by Jewish authors within a context of hoping for a new Exodus. Join us as we speak with Seth Ehorn about Exodus in the New Testament. You're listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Seth M. Ehorn teaches Greek language and linguistics in the Department of Modern and Classical Languages at Wheaton College. Seth, welcome to New Books in Biblical Studies. It's great to be here. Thank you. Seth, tell us about yourself, your family, and your work. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I hold a PhD from the University of, University of Edinburgh uh, in New Testament Literature, Language, and Theology. Um, I completed that in, I guess I graduated in 2015. And ever since then, I've been back in the Chicagoland area, uh, writing, uh, researching, and teaching as well at Wheaton College. Um, I'll talk more about uh, my scholarship in a moment, but I'm, I'm married. I have two young children, uh, let's see, five and eight almost nine-year-old, and also have a very active bird dog. So it's sort of like a third child. Uh, a lot of fun, though. It keeps keeps us busy around here. Um, in terms of my work, what do I do? Uh, I teach. Uh, I work at, in the Biblical Studies and Classical Languages Department at Wheaton College. Um, just depends upon the year, what I'm doing and what I'm teaching. But uh, I've taught a whole range of Greek linguistics courses, Biblical Studies courses at the graduate and undergraduate level. Uh, and then I do a lot of research and writing uh, when I can find the time, uh, including the book we'll talk about today. Uh, but I also uh, work in the Septuagint, work in Hellenistic Judaism, uh, and especially the intersection of New Testament Hellenistic Judaism with the Greco-Roman world. Uh, that's at least what keeps me interested in, in uh, my work. So how did this project, Exodus in the New Testament, come together? What sparked the idea for you? Yeah. Um, the idea for this book, I can take all the way back to Scotland. Um, I was writing myself on Paul's use of scripture or scripture in the New Testament uh, during my sort of dissertation phase of my career. Um, and I went to uh, a seminar uh, called the Seminar on the Use of the Old Testament in the New in Hodden, Wales. Uh, it's a long-standing seminar. I can't remember. It's at least 20 years, maybe almost 30 years now running. It's one of the great small conferences uh, that if you're in, in the sort of broad field of intertextuality, this is a place where you would want to go. Uh, so while I was there, I gave a paper, um, and it went well, I think. Uh, and afterwards, I ended up talking with Steve Moyce and Martin Menken, um, who have edited books like Genesis in the New Testament and Psalms in the New Testament and Deuteronomy and the Minor Prophets, 
and there might be one more in there that I'm forgetting. Um, so I, I just developed a, a, a basis of a friendship with both of them. Uh, Steve Moist went on to be the doctoral examiner, the external examiner on my thesis at Edinburgh. And I remember it must have been several months after I had my Viva, after I defended, Moist suggested to me, he's like, maybe you want to take up a project that Martin and I began. Uh, we'd been doing these books, Exodus and, uh, sorry, Genesis and Deuteronomy and all, all those I mentioned. Um, maybe you would want to take the mantle and, and do these books going forward. Um, so that's, that planted the idea in my head. And I, I sat and thought with it for a little while and eventually put together a cast of characters, young, young career and late career, uh, a nice mix of them, uh, and pitched the book to Bloomsbury who had published all of the other books and they went for it. So that was the origin. And now uh, holding the fruits of the book in my hand now, but um, that's the trajectory of how that went. Now, before considering your own contribution to the book, would you give our listeners a basic review of the traditions of Exodus and why they are so important for understanding the second temple period for studying the new Testament? Yeah. Um, I want to mention, um, the, the first chapter of this book uh, in as part of the way I answer your question. And I can mention it favorably because I didn't write it. <laughs> it was written by Drew Longacre. It's one of the really excellent chapters of the book. There's several really excellent chapters in the book. I, I mean, I think they're all good, but um, this one is one of the standout ones. And it, it, what it does is situate Exodus and Exodus traditions in second temple Judaism. Um, and it helps the reader understand not only what are the contents of this book, but what are the ways this book has been disseminated in Greek and Hebrew? Um, what are the problems with the Greek and Hebrew traditions? Uh, and there's some really well-known problems like the tabernacle narrative, for example. Uh, so this, this is just a nice programmatic essay to kind of give a lay of the land. Um, so everything I'll say now is just sort of a, hopefully a down payment on what Drew Longacre does in that uh, chapter, which is really excellent. Um, so Exodus, there's sort of a shape to the book. Um, I think it's a threefold shape. The first 12 chapters, uh, you start with Israel and Egypt, right? So if, you, if you've read the end of the book of Genesis, you know you've got a family that's in Egypt, but something changes, right? Uh, the tide turns for the worse, and you have a development of a, of a problem while Israel's in Egypt, and then every problem needs a solution. Uh, so the solution is we have to get them out. Uh, and so you have uh, Moses being summoned to intervene in this situation. Uh, obviously, Joshua plays a role as well. Um, but Moses uh, eventually gets the people out of Egypt, obviously with miracles and God's uh, intervention in the situation. But then, where are they, where are they to go next? This is going to occupy the next several chapters. Um, chapters 13 through about 18 take us uh, from Egypt to Sinai. And uh, there's a whole range of interesting things that go on there, right? The Israelites looking back and wondering, did we have it better in Egypt, right? Did we have food? Did we have um, uh, better circumstances there? And I mentioned because those are important touchstones that are going to uh, take us into the New Testament, right? The grumblings and the longing for uh, our former captivity is an odd thing to think about, but it recurs in the New Testament. Once we're at Sinai, uh, we have about half the book of Exodus from about chapter 19 to 40. Um, and uh, Israel's encamped there. We have the giving of the law. 
um, with uh, all the sort of uh, Ten Commandments. Um, you have the Golden Calf incident. Uh, you, you eventually have this settling of God's presence uh, on the camp and, and uh, I guess you'd call it a period of homeostasis. Uh, but that's sort of the large shape of the book. Um, obviously, within the large shape of the book, there are a number of themes that emerge uh, that, that sort of pop up at different places. Um, Drew points them out in his chapter, so I'll just reiterate them now here. Um, God's righteousness uh, emerges as a theme throughout. Um, uh, overtly, it happens in the Pharaoh narrative, right? God, God's right to do what he wants. Um, God's righteousness, of course, uh, occurs in the idolatry scenes and the golden calf narrative as well. Um, the deliverance themes uh, are, are big. Uh, that's probably the most well-known theme. When you think of Exodus, you think of deliverance through the waters of uh, uh, the Red Sea. Um, you also have the, the covenant, right? God initiates a covenant with, with the people. He gives them the law. Um, that's a massive theme that plays an important part in the formation of the people into uh, a covenant people. Um, and then ultimately the revelation of God's glory, um, uh, and I think that that's a theme that's weaved all throughout as well, right? God is revealing his glory uh, and all, his glory over even other other uh, Egyptian gods in the plagues. But he's also revealing his glory through his presence uh, at the end of the book in being with the people. So all of those play an important role uh, in, in the shape of the book of Exodus. Um, but one thing that's important, because you asked about the importance, why is it so important to know? Many of the uses of the book of Exodus in the New Testament appear at the level of allusion, right? Not, not just at quotation. There's plenty of quotations, but many of them are at allusion. And that means that if you want to hear the allusion, you have to know and be familiar with the traditions themselves. Otherwise, you won't hear them. So it, it really presses upon us as readers, uh, as scholars, but also for lay readers to read the book of Exodus, to read it closely, to read it repeatedly, so that you have the right ears to hear those allusions when, when they come up in the New Testament themselves. Aside from being the book's editor, you also contributed a chapter on Exodus and the disputed Pauline letters. Tell us about that. Well, I should probably comment initially on what is a disputed Pauline letter. Some readers might not know or some listeners might not know what that means. Um, so in New Testament studies and in Pauline studies, there is a debate. Um, some people would say it's not a debate, but there is a debate about what letters did Paul actually write. Uh, and there's terminology that goes with that. Um, some would use the word inauthentic, and then they would refer to other letters that are authentic. So most, most scholars would accept that there is at least seven letters that Paul wrote. Uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, uh, Philippians, Philemon, and 1 Thessalonians. That's seven. Um, and then the others are debated, or some people would just say inauthentic. Um, I chose the word disputed so that I actually didn't uh, vest a value judgment in the title itself. I wanted to say, yeah, these are the disputed ones, and in part, that's just the corpus that I'm going to consider. But I didn't want to invest the value judgment in my title and even in my chapter. So I actually don't touch the question of did Paul write these or didn't he um, in the chapter itself. Um, that's something of a red herring on the question of how is the, the book Exodus used in these letters. Um, it's an interesting question, though, to think about 
does Exodus get used this, the same way as, say, Romans or something? Um, but that wasn't uh, what I set out to do. Um, so that's at least a little bit about the title and what I do. Um, so that means that what do I actually consider in my chapter? Uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and the pastoral letters. Um, I, don't, I don't hear any Exodus references in Second Thessalonians, um, and I also don't hear any in, uh, I guess, Titus. I don't really consider First Timothy either, just Second Timothy. So uh, the Exodus references that I discerned, uh, uh, I start with Ephesians, and I start in kind of an unusual place. <laughs> um, Ephesians 4.8 is a quotation, but it's not a quotation of Exodus. It's a quotation of, many people think, and I, I think, Psalms. Uh, Psalm 67 in the Greeks, uh, verse 19. Uh, in, in your English Bibles, that'd be 68, 18. But in, in, the, in the Greek text, if you have a uh, Ralph's Septuaginta, it would be a 67, 19. So why am I considering a psalm in a book on Exodus? Um, it's because if you go pick up really any standard commentary, like a, a good critical commentary, um, the most common answer is that uh, the author, Paul, perhaps, is not quoting from the psalm, but quoting from some kind of tradition, maybe a targum. And if you go read the targum to the psalm, it places that psalm on Sinai, on Mount Sinai. And it, it explicitly evokes Moses and the giving of the law, and Torah and gifts. And so um, why do they think, why, why might a New Testament scholar think that Paul's quoting from targum as opposed to a psalm well because if you go read the hebrew bible or the septuagint the greek bible um it doesn't speak about uh god giving gifts away it speaks about god receiving gifts right so there's something of an inversion happening and the targum for example actually agrees with the pauline quotation right there's a giving of gifts happening here as opposed to God receiving gifts. And so they say, oh, that must be the explanation. So that's why I, I include it in the chapters. It does seem to be part of this uh, larger discussion of Exodus traditions that are being pulled over, potentially. So I, I weigh the merits of that discussion. I actually end up deciding negatively uh, this isn't an Exodus tradition. It's probably a, an authorial adaptation. Uh, but I won't go into all the painstaking details of why. Uh, but that's a that's a fun example, and it's a great uh, it's a great example though of how not just source texts like like Exodus or Psalms, but maybe the traditions related to those source texts are important to study as we think about Paul in Scripture or the New Testament in Scripture. We're in other words, we're we're thinking about not just echoes of Scripture, but echoes of interpreted Scripture. So that's the first example uh, with a negative value judgment. Um, uh, I'll just maybe talk about two more. Um, there's a quotation of Exodus in the household code in Ephesians chapter six. Um, so it's interesting what, what's going on there. Um, you have a, uh, a quotation of honor. I think it's children honor your parents for this is right in the Lord. Um, and so, What's, what's fascinating to me about that text is not only that um, the, the text is being reinterpreted to be about young children, not just uh, like, you know, within the, within the framework of a household, 
Um, that's that's a redeployment of I would I would call the original meaning of the Decalogue. Um, in the Decalogue, it seems to be about you know. Uh, children who are probably older, who, who can honor their parents through maybe taking care of them uh, into old age, that kind of thing. But in Ephesians, it is it is activated about within the framework of the household about young children. It's very clear that 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 text is about uh, children as opposed to adults. Um, that's not a, a departure from the meaning of the Decalogue, but it is a specific trajectory of what it could mean um, that that doesn't encapsulate all of what it means in the Decalogue. So that's fun. Um, but the other thing about that text that was really fun to study is um, the author there will talk about how um, that particular commandment is the first given with a promise. Uh, there's a whole debate about, you know, like, is that accurate? And um, what, you know, what does that phrase mean? But what, what was so fascinating to me about that was it what it shows is our author is extremely familiar with the minutiae of this text, right? It's not sort of an abstract knowledge of the Decalogue uh, from Exodus here, but this author knows and is interpreting, oh yes, this is the first particular, this is the first promise that's given with a particular promise. And he knows that and can use that rhetorically in the context of his letter, which I think suggests not only that he knows it, but that his readers probably know that. So if we use that kind of data uh, to sort of interpret what would they know about these texts and about these traditions, it, it suggests they have a high knowledge of it, a high level of knowledge. They're competent readers and listeners of these texts, which I think is a, a, a fun conclusion uh, uh, and probably a sensible one as well from such a popular text. Um, the last one I'll talk about here is from Second uh, Timothy chapter three, verses eight and nine. Uh, it's a story of uh, Jonas and Jambres. I hope I'm saying their names right, correctly. Um, so this is a, a story, um, it's interesting, those names don't appear in Exodus. Um, but in the Exodus traditions that are uh, emerging in the Second Temple period, um, Jonas and Jambres are the names of Egyptian magicians who uh, were opponents of Moses, right, in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. So it's interesting, again, right, uh, our author there seems to be drawing upon an Exodus tradition, but one that is not explicitly just from, say, Israel's scripture. It's also sort of got these sort of added folklore built into it, uh, or added traditions built into it, um, which again makes that point I made just a moment ago about needing to know just, not just the scripture itself, but the echoes of interpreted scripture. Um, what does our author do with this? Um, I think, uh, and argue in the chapter, there's, it's an analogical reading. That is, um, by analogy, just as these people, uh, Jonas and Jambres, opposed Moses, so also we have opponents in our midst who are opposing our leaders. Um, and so, how you know who won in is in the book of Exodus? Well, we all know Moses and Joshua win. Uh, who's going to win now? Well, it needs to be Timothy. It needs to be uh, those leaders who are sanctioned by him. Um, so that that's an uh, that, that's an analogical reading. But there's also something else I want to say about uh, Jonas and Jambres in this context. Um, part of the additional uh, interpretive tradition that emerges around them is 
speculation about their origin. And so in uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, like the Damascus document, and at least one other text, I'd have to go read what I wrote, <laughs> uh, but I'd have to go double check. But it, in, in several of the traditions that I study and, and include in the chapter, it seems pretty clear that Jonas and Jambres actually went with the Israelites when they left Egypt and may even belong to the Israelites in some sense. Um, so that's really, that's fascinating because again, it does seem like our author in 2 Timothy is aware not just of what the Exodus tradition says, but of these other traditions. So what does that say about who the opponents are in 2 Timothy? It seems like they belong to the communities. They're not outsiders to the communities, but maybe they actually belong to the communities themselves. And the threat is from within, um, which would make sense with a lot of the rhetoric of the letter and a lot of the threats and, and the way that uh, opponents are dealt with throughout First and Second Timothy, right? The, the real threats are those from within us claiming, claiming something bad, not just outsiders. Um, so that's a fascinating way that um, those traditions might be brought to bear uh, in a particular text in 2 Timothy 3. And all of that, um, for me, forms a way that our author, the same author, I think, um, talks about all scripture being God-breathed, being useful for rebuking, teaching, and correction. This, I think, is an example of how all of scripture, even this obscure story about these opponents, right, can be useful pedagogically and instructively in their own communities for uh, shaping them, uh, shaping them in, in their belief in Christ and in their unity with one another. So that that's more or less what I do in that chapter. I have a, a short discussion on Colossians as well, um, with some some uh, allusions and things like that. But those are kind of the big pieces that I discuss. Seth, would you give us an idea about the diversity of how New Testament authors appealed to Exodus traditions? Is there any unifying factor to their use of Exodus traditions? Yeah. That's a great question. So there are definitely common points that emerge um, throughout the sources covered in the volume, but there's, there is plenty of diversity as well. Um, and I point out in my, I have a very short introduction to the whole book where I point out that there's actually a diversity of uses of Exodus, even in modern sources, right? So I start with Hamilton, right? We roll like Moses claiming our promised land. That's Lin-Manuel Miranda in um, my shot, one of the opening songs of Hamilton, uh, all the way to Jude the Obscure. Uh, he talks, uh, the lead character Jude talks about wanting to learn Hebrew and Greek, and it's a labor like that of Israel and Egypt, right? So you have this, this like, you know, our whole life depends upon this sort of Moses-like deliverance, and then a really trivial, like, oh, studying Greek is hard, right? <laughs> um, so there's a, a real diversity in modern uses, but that diversity is mirrored in antiquity as well. Um, so some of the uses that show up in the New Testament, um, just summarizing what the, the, the fabulous contributors did, um, Israel's deliverance from Egypt, that's the most well-known tradition, I think, that uh, Exodus supplies our New Testament authors. So uh, we hear a lot about Exodus and New Exodus themes, and New Exodus would take us through the book of Isaiah as well. Um, but there's... Uh, that's a huge theme, um, and there's there's a whole industry of scholarship even built around, you know, is our Second Temple Jews thinking of themselves as awaiting a, a deliverance, right? And is Jesus the deliverer for that? 
Um, N.T. Wright would be probably the most famous example, but I know uh, there are uh, other treatments on that as well that are worth considering. Um, Moses as a lawgiver um, that emerges from Exodus, but that's an important tradition that informs at least the Gospel of Matthew's depiction of Jesus as a lawgiver. Um, it's not, no secret that Matthew is structured uh, with five discourses. Um, and, uh, of course, the Pentateuch is five books. Um, and there's other correspondences as well uh, in Matthew, like Jesus is on the mountainside giving Torah. And, you know, you, you've heard it said, and he quotes from the books of Moses. And then he says, but I say to you, right, he's giving a new law. Um, so that provides an important um uh, not only tradition, but a, really even a framework for the Gospel of Matthew and its presentation of Jesus. Um, the plagues are recast in the book of Revelation, I think in a way that signals the new judgment uh, uh, is coming upon God's enemies. And uh, that's happening largely at the level of illusion, and there's a lot of playfulness and adaptation that goes on there, but uh, the plagues emerge uh, again. And maybe related to that, signs and wonders, that's the language of the book of Exodus. Um, it's interesting that um, that language is found in the New Testament as well. Signs and wonders that demonstrate something uh, in the New Testament about the identity of Jesus often. Who, who is he? But it's often using similar kind of language of a sign. Um, the story of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, uh, that's employed by Paul in Romans 9-11. through uh, That's an example of how God is merciful, right? There's a whole fun discussion to have in those chapters, but Paul uses that to talk about how, uh, how God's mercy works, and in particular about how God's choice about who to harden and who to soften works. Um, the golden calf story uh, occurs in a couple different places, um, but probably the most famous one in the, in the New Testament is a very highly elusive quotation uh, in 1 Corinthians 10. Paul says something like, uh, the people uh, rose up to play, right? And, and if you don't know what that sentence comes from or where that quote comes from, you wouldn't know like, oh, that's from the golden calf incident. That's from an idolatry context. And once you have that sense activated in your mind, then you can interpret 1 Corinthians 10 correctly. Like, oh, he's, he's trying to warn them. He's trying to give the Corinthian Christians a warning about engaging in certain kinds of practices and how that could lead to their destruction, right, if, you're, if you behave like they did. Uh, but that, that would be another great example of how um, knowing the context and having that active in mind is really important uh, because Paul doesn't always go bother to explain fully what he means, right? Sometimes you just have to fill in the, the gaps, so to speak. Um, there are Paschal traditions, Passover traditions uh, in the Passion uh, narratives, but I'm thinking especially of the Gospel of John. Um, and there's a quotation in the Gospel of John. Uh, it, it would be after Jesus dies and Pilate wants to uh, go and make sure all the, the crucified bodies are dead on the cross. So go break everybody's legs. Let's speed this up. And the soldiers get to Jesus and they report, oh, he's already dead. And John takes this as a fulfillment of Exodus 12. He actually calls it a fulfillment and says, uh, therefore, it says no bone shall be broken. Um, th that plays another important kind of structural role 
in John's gospel, right? That's happening close to the end, uh, chapter 20-ish, I want to say. Um, but if you remember, all the way back to the beginning of John's gospel, Jesus is identified really early on as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? So he, his identity starts early on as a lamb, and he dies as the unblemished lamb on the cross, there's a fun discussion that we probably shouldn't get into about what day does Jesus die on in John's gospel. It's different from the synoptics, but he dies on the day the lambs are slaughtered, according to the Paschal week, right? John clearly cares about that detail uh, and the identification of Jesus as the lamb. Um, finally, uh, the wilderness or the Exodus generation metaphor in the book of Hebrews, um, and there are other things in Hebrews, too, but that's probably the lowest hanging fruit. Um, in Hebrews, readers are presented with the challenge that they must hold fast to their confession. Right. Think of think of it as a new covenant that they're given. Right. As they await uh, a new deliverer, a new Moses or a new Joshua or in their case, a Jesus. So that's just scratching the surface of some of the ways that Exodus is redeployed and used in the New Testament. There are more. Uh, and some of the additional ways are even discussed in this book. Uh, but uh, I'm also not under the illusion that we've covered everything in this book either, right? It, it's more meant to demonstrate some of the possibilities, but not exhaust them. So what's next on the horizon for you in terms of writing or other projects? Yeah, thank you. Um, I have a book coming out in a matter of weeks. Uh, so September 2022, I'll have a book coming out with Baylor University Press on 2nd Maccabees. It's in their handbook on the Baylor handbook of the Septuagint. Um, I mentioned that uh, as well because in the future I'm doing some other work on two Maccabees uh, language and rhetorical features of the book. So um, that's something I hope to be uh, working on over the next five or so years. Um, probably of more interest to some of the listeners here. Uh, I'm in the final stages of uh, writing and revising a commentary on Philemon. Um, for the Evangelical Exegetical Commentary series. Um, I hope, I expect the book will be available late 2023 or early 2024 to give you a sense for how, how quick that's coming. But um, that's been really fun to uh, write and revise and clarify my thoughts on that letter. Um, the other project, uh, so mo most of that's, all, my, my plate is almost clear. Um, so the next big book, though, is something indirectly related to what we've been talking about today. It's, it's a book project called The Art of Misquotation. Uh, it's a book a book length study on how ancient authors, uh, how and why ancient authors adapted their sources when they quoted texts. Um, so a number of the texts that we, we mentioned today uh, are, uh, have been redeployed in, their new, in, in the New Testament and changed, right? The wording gets changed. Um, in fact, one scholar, teacher, Alex Koch, uh, he talks about in Paul's letters over 51% of the time he seems to change the wording of his sources, right? So it, it's a question of why. Why does that happen? Um, so what I do in the book, and I've, 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 the research has already started on this, um, I collect not only examples, but also overt discussions from other uh, Greco-Roman and Jewish authors about when they know they're mis misquoting, I use that in scare quotes, when they know they're misquoting and why they do it. Um, so that's, uh, that's the next book. And I, I'm looking forward to not only reading a whole range of ancient sources and, and putting uh, 
synthesizing them, but also using that synthesis as a way to help us think better about what's going on in the New Testament and in Second Temple uh, Jewish literature when they are quoting texts. What are they doing? Seth, it's been great hearing about Exodus in the New Testament. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Friends, you've been listening to New Books in Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. See you next time.